This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. I didn't have uh, a music of my own that resonated with kind of my school friends, um, you know, like for a while. And Omanoi lived with us, uh, which meant that there was a lot of Vietnamese around which meant that there was a, a lot of uh, Vietnamese music around of kind of like both like the kind of Paris by night and Asia and that kind of thing that my parents were listening to, like like the, you know, like Eli and the Bun Ngoc, that kind of stuff that yeah. my my parents were more likely to listen to, but then also like like the hardcore Kai Lung that my grandparents were listening to. So that was always running around the house. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Hey, Jason, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm really good. Really good. Um, what does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? I would start out by saying that in a broad sense, we, I like to start from understanding that Vietnamese identity and being Vietnamese is a construction. Now, being a construction doesn't mean that anything is bad in and of itself, but just to say that when we, when Vietnamese people, for example, say that uh, Vit, like Vietnamese people have been around for thousands of years and we fought China for thousands of years and fought the French and all, all those things, uh, you didn't do that, right? So what we are saying is that we have made an active choice to put ourselves in continuity with particular people in the past, right? And, and that is a project of producing who you are as a person and who the, the network of people you care about you know, are as well. So for me, being Vietnamese is about deciding and teasing out the parts of uh, that history that have direct relevance to me and my life. Now, a lot of that has to do with family, right? Yeah. So for me, an important thing when it comes to talking about identity and about being Vietnamese is no one is Vietnamese in general. And in fact, people who talk about being Vietnamese as like uh, uh, in, in that general sense, probably don't have a, don't have access to, and I, I don't blame them ever, but like people our age and a little bit younger, uh, you hear a lot of people say like, I am Vietnamese in this general sense, right? And what they're trying to do is get access to being Vietnamese, but they don't have the details and they don't have access to, to the details because they don't speak Vietnamese, because their parents didn't teach them Vietnamese, they didn't teach them the history or whatever. So I'm not blaming anyone in the equation, but for me, it was really important, for example, to know that my both sides of my family come specifically from like Hai Zung on one side and Hanoi on the other side. And, like that's specific on one level, that means that I speak with uh, with a back accent and a back accent from like before 54. All these things come together. I, when I visited Vietnam back in, uh, I think it's 2016 or so, um, 
I, I was in Hanoi and then I spoke and I was trying to buy some gifts for some family members that we still have in Vietnam. And so I went to a, a wine shop, like a liquor shop, right? Like as, yeah. you, as you would, right? And I went in there and I bought some stuff and I talked to the lady and she was like, you have a Vietnamese accent from here, but not here from like from here now. It's like from here years ago, like it, and, and so for her, it connected me to even specifically the sound of Hanoi from pre like you know, from pre fifty four, and for me, those specificities is what being Vietnamese is about. There's there's no point to talk about being Vietnamese in general if you don't know where you're coming from, if you don't know what your connections are, then like, then you you should at least find something to connect to now. Some people don't have those direct connections going back multiple generations, and they're as Vietnamese as anyone else. Like um, one person I, I think about is um, in in the Gailung world. There's uh, there's Chi Tam, the very the very kind of famous. He, he was married to Hung Lan for a while, and then uh, but not famous uh, Gailung singer in, in his own uh, you know in his own world, right? But uh, I, I believe that he. Uh, is ethnic Chinese, right? And which a lot of, you know, you know a, a lot of people in the South are. But that what that reminds me is that, like, there's nothing more South Vietnamese than singing Gai Lung music, right? Mm -hmm. But like a lot of the people in the industry and a, lot, and a lot of the people who in South Vietnam we care about as musicians are not that middle of the road Vietnamese kind of in an uncomplicated sense. Right. Like you got Ji Thum, who is, you know, uh, who is at least part uh, ethnic Chinese. You, you have, let's um, um, I think, think of, well, off the top of my head, I'm, I'm blanking right at this moment. But you, know, you, you get the you get the sense. Um, I have a question. Um, why? Yeah, sure. Why is it that the south of Vietnam has a lot of Chinese roots when you think of the north being bordering China? should have much more Chinese roots, right? They, ha you know, they have like Chinese roots in different ways. So, so the North has Chinese connections directly through kind of the border, right? So, so obviously, uh, if, if you go to like the Northern parts uh, of, of Minbak, Vietnam, the, the North, like right along the border, those parts, are like any border, very mixed. The people on either side are speaking Chinese and Vietnamese. You have people just north of the border who play Vietnamese instrument and play Vietnamese music. And you have people just south of the border who are really into Chinese things and, and speak Chinese, et cetera, right? So, so there's a different kind of blending that happens there. What happened in the south though is Saigon in particular was a hugely uh, diverse city because it was a port um, that has, has had history through a bunch of different empires, even before the Qing people, right? So they're kind of modern day ethnic Vietnamese. Uh, and each of those groups brought in their own cultures, brought in people who lived there. Uh, and then you have all the different ethnic minorities in Vietnam. So, so you have Vietnam, Vietnam's kind of like already living in that geograph geographical area, ethnic, mm -hmm. uh, ethnic minorities. Then you've got people from across the rest of Southeast Asia, all the way to India, coming into the port right outside Saigon, right? Oh, got so, it. So, so then, so Saigon ends up having all these different groups, including 
uh, where we now refer to like Jalun, um, that area, right? right? It, it, that area is there Chinatown. Where, yeah, it was Chinatown, and it just has stayed that way, like you know, forever. Uh, even like before the kind of like modern uh, Vietnam's right. version of Saigon. It's always been, it's always been, but then you go to yeah. uh, Bac Liu, Sok Chang, Cần Thơ, you know, all of those regions have just a heavy, I mean, it's my family, my, my dad's side uh, yeah. came from that uh, whole era. Um, you know, you take 23andMe, uh, these tests and, you know, it'll point to so much ethnic Chinese in, in, in our blood. Well, yeah, and, and that just goes to I I don't know all the details. Uh, it's not it's not my area of expertise, kind of like like early Vietnamese history, but um, my understanding of it is that that just goes to the fact that that's the way the Mekong Delta works. Yeah, right. Like like you you've got a big city at the mouth of the Delta, and then you've got basically everyone else, everyone looking for opportunities, just working their way down, and and. Uh, you know, and the Chinese of, of the time, they were there as as uh, businessmen and they were there as, uh, you know, tradesmen and et cetera. So of course they would have looked for opportunities further downstream and probably, you know, made family, you know, started families and whatnot. I uh, wanna ask you, what did you uh, think about when you were growing up? Um, you know, did you want to be a uh, ethnomusicologist right out of the, you know, growing up or did you, want to be in a rock band and you know you studied music I mean how did this all come about so, so I was born and raised in North Carolina uh, and part of and as in Winston-Salem actually so Winston-Salem is not a Vietnamese heavy how, how did uh, they end city. up how did your parents end up there um, basically work. I mean, like, I mean, in, in the, anyone who knows the kind of geography of North Carolina relative to Vietnamese folks knows that Charlotte and Raleigh are the big centers, Greensboro to some extent, right? And, and, and those, and, uh, Winston-Salem is just north, uh, or it's, it's just, uh, west of Greensboro and, and about an hour and a half north of Charlotte. Uh, so my mom was from kind of, her family had settled in the Charlotte area, uh, my dad's family settled closer in the Chapel Hill, uh, Raleigh area, and then they just kind of uh, when my then when my parents got married, they kind of converged on that area when he, my dad found work there. Um, but in any case, we ended up. Uh, it wasn't as bad as say like I've talked to you know going to Indiana University uh, for grad school. I had a lot of Vietnamese friends in the in the Midwest, <laughs> and that situation. Yeah is really different, right? In terms, in terms of your kind of disconnection from any other Vietnamese people outside of maybe the people who are who settled there with you. Um, but growing up, there wasn't a whole bunch of Vietnamese um, community around. And there were a few other families that, that we knew. Uh, the, the temple, of course, our family is Buddhist. So the temple was a way for us to be around a lot of Vietnamese things. But when you're young, you're not really thinking about like, yeah, I really need to maintain some sense of Vietnamese-ness. You're just trying to fit in with other kids, right? Yeah. So, of course, my parents uh, wanted us to, uh, my sisters and I, uh, just to study uh, music from pretty early on. Uh, and uh, it was up to me to pick uh, out of a selection of classical Western instruments and I played violin starting pretty early on. Why did they expect you to play music? Did they have musical backgrounds themselves? 
Uh, not serious ones. My my mom likes to sing. My uh, my dad never got the opportunity to study music formally, but he could pick some things on guitar and 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 he, and he he was always he could always dabbling. pick up any instrument. Yeah, he can dabble in any instrument, but he but he wasn't professionally trained in anything, and and so there there was a little bit of that. But I think mostly there's a in a. I'll say that in a particular class of Vietnamese people, and, and um, I would say my, my parents uh, were at the time in a middle class ish, right? So, uh, and and my mom's family in particular was a pretty well educated family from the start, um, which what comes with that is this expectation of of hitting certain kind of norms of uh, both assimilation, but but of uh, education, right? Especially my both sides of my family are from the north. Have you ever been to Hanoi and been to like the, the, the temple of literature? There's a certain idea of, of the relationship between class and education mm -hmm. that comes from that yeah. part of Vietnam, right? And uh, I think uh, there's a and, and there's all these different ways that people think about uh, how to be high class, how to be successful, how to reach, how to aspire, right? And, uh, and, and part of that is in, in my family was, is a kind of a well-roundedness across the board, like, like, right? Like, like, yeah. yeah like, I mean, we, we did, we did Taekwondo growing up too. We did, we did violin, Taekwondo, and then we studied it, you know, um, like all the time. Can you so explain Van Songtuan? Uh, yeah. So uh, it's, it's one of those lines that you, that come from, uh, like Kung Fu dramas, right? Like martial arts serials. Mm -hmm. And uh, literally means um, van as in uh, the arts and literature, and then va as in martial arts, uh, as in the like kung fu, songtuan, uh, the harmonizing, coming together, mm -hmm. and, and being balanced. Right. So that was all, that kind of idea. I mean, my 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 dad would put it that way sometimes. Yeah. Uh, you know, but like you know, just a joke around. But the idea that that the well-roundedness across music and across uh, physical and, and, and kind of literary arts was an important kind of uh, feature, which comes from kind of a Confucian yeah. uh, history a little bit. Yep. You know. mm -hmm. So uh, you studied violin for how many years? Uh, I started violin, I want to say around kindergarten, and I played all the way through college. Oh, wow. Uh, oh. Yeah, so, so sat uh, first chair in my high school orchestra, um, was less focused in in, in college uh, and so moved between like first second third chair it's kind of bounced around and did and, you study music in college that was your major yeah uh, I uh, no uh, it wasn't my major I I took I continued to take uh, lessons and, and as as formal coursework while I was in, in school I considered a minor but uh, ended up not going that direction uh, because once I was in uh, college i was uh, a pre-med uh, biology bs major got it got it yeah. and then at what point did you um start picking up sort of our um vietnamese instruments so um in college i was lucky enough to be on, um on a scholarship at a wake forest university that allowed me to write up uh, a grant proposal where the money was already set aside for me in the summers, as long as I could convince them that the thing that I was doing for the summer was valuable for myself and for society at large, 
then they would uh, fund me to do a summer project. And basically what I used that uh, opportunity to do was spend all of my summers uh, studying with Tang uh, in uh, Montreal, Canada every summer. So I would go up, um, the first few years I stayed with a, with, with a uh, Catholic uh, Vietnamese lady down the street from his house and, 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 and would live with her and then, and then take, uh, uh, and take the tram over to, you know, to, to his house. And then, uh, you know, like two or three times a week, uh, that, that first year, um, I didn't go to his house as often. Um, uh, but by like the fourth year I was living at his house. So wow. can we backtrack yeah. a little bit? Like you're playing violin all these years and then Yes. What made you go to Montreal? Like, how did you find that connection? And what drew you to Montreal to um, this master? So I guess if we back up to, to high school uh, and going back to the earlier question, that was when questions of identity and how to navigate kind of spaces as a, as a I guess I've, in high school, and I think this is true in spaces where you, there's not enough Vietnamese people to matter, but like you end up navigating the world is figuring out what can my Asian body do in these spaces, right? Because like, like it's not like everyone else in the world is thinking like, oh man, this guy's Vietnamese. They're just like, it's an Asian guy. Yeah. So, so you try to, you're trying to perform a version of yourself in high school, right? And everyone remembers high school uh, that, that can be true to yourself, but also be cool enough to like have friends, right? Um, and, and, but I felt a certain kind of estrangement, say, you mentioned rock music, and, and it's funny, like, I felt a certain estrangement from American popular culture, in part because uh, my grandparents lived, uh, my, uh, my grandparents, my dad's side, so Omanoi lived with us, uh, which meant that there was a lot of Vietnamese around, which meant that there was a, a lot of uh, Vietnamese music around of kind of like both, like the kind of Paris by night and Asia and that kind of thing that my parents were listening to. Like like the you know like Eline and Bunyok that kind of stuff that yeah. my my parents were more likely to listen to but then also like like the hardcore Kai Lung that my grandparents were listening to so that was always running around the house, um, which to some extent I didn't have uh, a music of my own that resonated with kind of my school friends um, you know like for a while and and I and my siblings and I I guess we all picked different directions. Uh, my youngest sister, sister, she ended up going the K-pop direction, and she was really mm -hmm. into K-pop way before the K-pop wave became super big. She was like, you know, hanging out with those kids, and then, and then my other sister, so they're both younger than me. She ended up going more in a kind of a alternative rock direction, yeah. right? Like, um, and I ended up going in a hip-hop direction, that thinking that like I wanted to. Um, ally myself with, at least in this kind of uh, pseudo-cultural way uh, with the, what, I, what I perceived at the time as a kind of the, the music of the underground, the music of the outsider. Um, and, and so- Which groups became, in hip hop were you uh, into? Oh man, like going back that, that far. Um, early on, I really love Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah. Like really love Wu Tang Clan, uh, particularly the more lyrical-minded, you know, uh, members. So like Ghostface, 
Jizza, Rizza. <laughs> I mean, they're all very lyrically minded. But like, but the, but I mean, I think those three kind of gives you the uh, like, if you if you know Wu Tang Clan, like, gives you the sense of like the kind of tongue twisteriness that that uh, yep. that I preferred and like, and then and then and then a number of like, and I think more kind of underground uh, acts. Uh, like at, uh, atmosphere, I listen to them a lot. I, uh, I ask you all these questions yeah. because I'll, obviously I want to build a, up a context uh, yeah. of your sort of musical journey uh, that sort of I want to kind of, um, I have this like blank canvas about people and, you know, people who sit yeah. as guests to get to sort of, we get to see building blocks of, especially now in the musical context for you, um, you know, you got really into hip hop and that was sort of like what you identified with. And then now I begin to see where this leads to with uh, with our with our Vietnamese instruments. Yeah, so I, I mean, the, the thing is, I'm playing violin and I'm a pretty a pretty high level violin player through high school. Right. And eventually you get to this point where, wow, black folks have their music. And, and young, and more specifically, young black people have their music, right? Yeah. And and so you can ask yourself, what is my music? Because I'm, I enjoy, you know, like what my parents are listening to, but it's not mine per se. You know, like, like I mean, like every kind of youth generation ends up developing its own you know, uh, sound, yeah, sound, right. And, and so it wasn't, that wasn't for me. Um, I, the, at, at the time, I think like C-pop was doing some interesting things, uh, blending a lot, uh, with, with hip hop sounds. And yeah. like, I, I like that, but then that's still not, that's still not ours. Us, right? yeah. yeah. And, and especially like Hong Kong, Hong Kong Chinese culture specifically has had a lot of cross pollination with Vietnamese stuff, but in general, we still know it's not ours, right? Like, yeah. like the language like, is, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you, you watch uh, uh, Hip and you like you like it, but you know but it it's not like yeah. ours. It's not yeah. ours. Yeah, um, you just yeah. know so, that um, it's not ours. Even the way yeah. that that's an interesting point that you bring up. And how do you know it's not ours? It's because you see the lips move moving, and it's not ours. It's because it's all dubbed, you know, spoken words that are, excuse me, dubbed over. So you, I. You you immediately identify that that what you're seeing is slightly not me. It's like off. Yeah. And then, yeah. Exactly. And our whole and existence is like that almost. Yeah, I mean, all these things are really important. So, like, when when I talk about things that are Asian things that are, that are really crucial to my childhood, like like Tezuki, right? Like uh, like all the Kim Jong like you know novels like all that stuff is really really important to me as a young Vietnamese American trying to find spaces and and media that I could consume that felt like it was mine. But at the end of the day, like you know that that stuff comes from a a different thread in history, right? It comes yeah. from a different cultural thread in general. The, the way the music sounds, I mean, there's always that funny way that uh, people who dub, even without watching the mouth move, you get used to that. But there's a particular way of speaking Vietnamese that has a slight twang that we always joke about is like the like the dub you know, voice, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so like you pick up on those things. Uh, and and so that wasn't that wasn't ours either. And eventually, 
this was so i mean we're talking about me as a teenager so we're talking in the in the 90s then right like Vietnam is, has just opened up, but of course our communities have all kinds of complications between each other. And honestly, popular music from Vietnam was behind anyway, right? So the- in, in What do you sense, mean by that? It was behind? In, I mean, I mean in, a, in the very specific sense that technologically in, in terms of production value, in terms of its its uh, ability to access both the technical and discursive aspects of kind of the world popular music industries. It was just cut off for so long. Uh, just like literally- uh, Stunted. Part of, part of the, yeah, stunted by the Communist Party's choices about what sorts of music would allow. Stunted because it, it, it didn't acknowledge the fact that the, the South Vietnam had made lots of progress in popular music you know, in the 60s and 70s, which a lot of the music which had banned after the fact. Uh, in the 90s was when that was starting to become a thing again. Like they, in Vietnam, they were starting to figure out how to, to use synthesizers and, and use eight tracks and stuff like that. But like, I mean, like that, they were just starting. So if you listen to pop music from Vietnam and, and, and you're from America and you're listening to like, you know, Wu-Tang Clan, <laughs> Yeah. Like immediately you realize that there's a gap that, yeah. that there's a gap and, and that it, it will not speak to you, right? Yeah. Even if your Vietnamese is, uh, you know, was good enough to like appreciate it. And, and, and so that's, are you that's saying, also assuming that you can get it. Yeah, that's assuming yeah. you can, can access it, right? Are you saying that from 75 to 95 for 20 years, we, the music in Vietnam was basically put on hold? Obviously people have to have music. And obviously people had to negotiate the fact that the party made decisions about, about the way a music was to be circulated and the sorts of music that would be allowed to be circulated, right? People negotiated that, that, that fact and figured out ways to make, to make music. Uh, but uh, it can't, like, I mean, you can't deny the fact that during that time period, Vietnam's economy was not going to be putting money to building out the music industry yeah like, it just wasn't going to be what well, just wasn't going to be what a it priority was yeah up until i would say the 90s when when basically the entire world was saying yeah this is like the, the dragon awakening right that, that somehow the, the, the this economy especially with you know with uh um with doi moi and everything right uh, the renovation policy um the economic renovation policy like that was when vietnam could say, hey, we're part of the world economy and we should look like we're part of the world economy and say, put money into pop cultural things, right? Uh, otherwise, pop culture happens regardless. Uh, I mean, Vietnam was, was, was making music. So, and, and, and a lot of the music's good, but uh, it's not good in the, the aesthetic sense that a, Western, a Westerner would listen to and be like, yeah, like that was totally made in a really high-end studio and like I can really bop to that, you know? Yeah, when, when do you feel like it, cause I have my sort of time period in my head when it kind of like changed for me on a personal level. Um, and it's when like Phuong Tan and, and Lam Chung and Dan Chung, all these pop stars were sort of emerging. I think it was like the late nineties or mid nineties and you yeah. would get this sense of like, it was like rock and roll, but it was like, cause you know, Fung Tan has this very raspy rock, rock and roll sound. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I felt like sort of that was for me, 
the rebirth at for the new generation it's just like whoa this is like there's a there's a, a new sound coming out of vietnam that's uh, you know liberating yeah i so as a as an ethnomusicologist and historian of music i totally get where you're coming from right i'm a little bit younger to have felt that at the time in the same way that you probably did M maybe by like i would say maybe four or five years five years yeah so so yeah so like be and and by by that I mean, to me, the music that my parents one I wasn't myself getting music from Vietnam at the time. Yeah. So then the music that my parents were bringing from Vietnam would then be like the kind of ballads being sung. I what I remember from the time was like all the singers basically like the ones my parents liked were just were just the ones like from like uh, the Hanoi Conservatory and they all sang mm -hmm. in this very mm -hmm. like perfect like you know ballad way and but they all sounded the same right um and and so i didn't myself get a picture of the rest of of vietnam's kind of pop music industry until later and now as having studied it and and like thinking about it now like when like let me just give you an example so like like sidan comes over in the mid 90s himself and he, um, before he comes over, is one of the kind of rising hot kind of you know, musicians of the youth generation of Vietnam. And he's just starting to use like, um, like, like using like, like uh, be able to program tracks and, and do that kind of digital stuff, right? He's just starting to do that kind of thing in, in Vietnam. So like, I know that the kind of production value and the kind of sounds that you would associate say with young people's dance music um, were starting to, to become a thing. But for me personally, I didn't really get a sense of that until probably the late 2000s. Mm. In part because like I heard that stuff then and I was like, ah, ain't for me. Yeah. And then kind of checked out for, for some time. Um, and even then, uh, I, I think if you're looking at, for example, the, the kind of pop dance, the, 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 that kind of particular kind of EDM sound that, that's really popular now, I think that's the one time where you can say very definitively that Vietnam's production values have increased. Beat, have and beaten the diaspora's uh, yeah. ability to create that kind of music, right? Like, like the diaspora is not making new like, music. Dance, dance music. It's not making yeah. dance music, definitely. I mean, it's making new music, but it's not making dance music, yeah. right? But and, I mean, I would argue uh, the diaspora is making new music. They're just redoing. They're just redoing songs from the past, right? Up until yeah. that point. I yeah. Mean, yeah. New, like new musical forms. Were we doing here? You know, in, in the U.S hardly anything new so i i mean i think whichever artists we had making new things um have basically gone back to vietnam by now right like if, if you think about the artists uh, i think about uh, the for example right like if you think about someone 
he's more in like like kind of acoustic singer songwriter kind of yeah. mold, right? Mm-hmm. But like he was he was a young diasporic Vietnamese person making music that was new that sounded different, right? That spoke to the sensibilities of people overseas, right? Yeah. I would I would say generally speaking, um, and and his music is was popular, but. Uh, but now he's gone back to Vietnam, right? For, for the most part, and 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 his and he's trying to get people in Vietnam to recognize that he that his music is and was good, <laughs> and, yeah. and that's the direction that he's that he's decided to move. Which, you know, that's uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But but just as far as then the there's a certain brain drain that, that has happened in that sense from the from the diaspora uh, when it comes to kind of creative new work. Now I I think. The, there are a lot of young people still involved in the diaspora music industries. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, and, and, and like particularly in, in like the, the, in the Dong sense, right? Like a connected to other Vietnamese people sense, not not just artists who happen to be Vietnamese, but yeah, you know, like yeah, you're talking like, about like, like Coachella people or you know artists that play mainstream or alternative rock, like. like uh, I mean that that crowd that crowd doesn't connect to Gokdong in the same way. Not right? at all. Yeah. Um, I it's funny. I, I'm so I'm writing my dissertation right now, and 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 uh, was writing about um, the early days of the the UNAVSA conference, the the Union of North American Vietnamese Student Associations, and um, oh, one of the early conferences. I think the I don't remember the year. I think it's 2006. So so, so yeah yeah. Two, and UNAVSA three is in 2006. And at this conference, they have uh, a group of, of kids from uh, LA, kind of uh, Orange County area, um, and um, called Thomas's apartment. Now you remember yeah, them? UCLA, UCLA kids, right? Yeah. So I you remember Nam, them? Nam Tran and Thomas and yeah, of... yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those guys. So they they were there, and part of the reason that they were there was that over the past like two three years before that, they were starting to make it big in the Gokdong. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So like, so like, and then I think pretty like a year after that, like SP, like they had won the SBTN talent show, and then like all the Vietnamese newspapers. The other only reason I I, I know all this is that I actually very recently did all the research, and just to see like how big they had made it. But like they like 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 Bao Nguyen Viet uh, was like writing about them and talking about how they were the future of rock for Vietnamese people and all this stuff. Yeah. But as as you're saying. Their dream is like the kind of Coachella crowd. I mean, they didn't make it that far, uh, not because they weren't talented musicians. It's just that it wasn't in the cards for them. But like, to the extent that they were in Gokdong, it was just that they happened to like be from, you know, the West Coast, yeah. and their families were all here and they're supporting them and, and everything. But the music they made, they mostly wrote it in English. Uh, there was a it's some general thematic things that, that occasionally linked up with Vietnamese identity, but largely just kind of teenage and young adult angst and those yeah, sorts of yeah. and loves and those sorts of things, right? So that's, I mean, that's one of the kind of problematic things if you're thinking about Vietnamese popular music in the diaspora is like, who is going to make it and, and who are you going to make it for? Like, on a basic level, is it going to be in Vietnamese? Because if it's going to be in Vietnamese, then uh, no one's listening to it. So, so then is your audience going to be in Vietnam? Are you going to be a musician in America making music for Vietnam? Well, if you're yeah, you're screwed. Music- I think if you're a Vietnamese American kid growing up in the 90s, or, you know, 
2000s and you were trying to make music you and if you wanted to do it for the Coachella crowd I mean it's hard it would would have been very difficult for you to cross over to mainstream like you know Voodoo Soul yeah 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 Voodoo Soul had chops he yeah was, do sound good sounded yeah. really good but somewhere in the mix between the growth of the diaspora the musical scene there and Vietnam it's like it's it's kind of like where where did he fit in you know but yeah but he was good we you know he's a good friend of mine actually and i you know loved uh, what he did but where can you connect with that because the lyrics need to connect with you and then and, and the music and the musicality needs to all like come together so you can feel it and um it was just like it just never connected with with yeah. the the whole I, body of Vietnamese people i mean the the truth is that there was and will continue to be, I think for a long time, a disjunction between young diaspora Vietnamese people and where they can get a source of Vietnamese popular music if they want it. And that is partially historical, well, it's all historical, right? I would say it's all historical, but some of it's cultural, uh, you know, some of it has to do with kind of broader uh, things happening in the world. Um, but a lot of people want to compare to say K-pop or or to J-pop or to, you know, basically every, everywhere else in Asia, like, heck, you know, my wife's Indian. So like, so like you know, Bollywood music is, is, is big, right? Uh, and so we always want to sit around and think, hey, how come we can't have that? Well, part of the problem is like, if you want to have that, that requires connecting with the homeland in a way where the two sides can nourish each other artistically, economically, socially, etc. right? Like Korean people are really tight with their Koreanness, right? Like they mm -hmm. can go to Korea, they can go to Seoul and, 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 and they can, you know, and, and they can enjoy uh, Seoul without worrying about their distance from it as a political entity as a historical entity yeah i never thought right? about that you're right um unless they go to north korea our, but like exactly you know, yeah, yeah our parents are still our the, the previous generation is still hung up on even being friendly to to our, the country vietnam and it's still something that we kind of as uh vietnamese american children need to sort of we need to break free of that at some point because the people in Vietnam are not thinking about that for sure, right? Yeah, they're just, they're like, just not. They're, they're just not worried about it. No, I mean, they're existing, yeah. and they don't. Yeah. They don't give a rat's ass. I mean, it's like ninety something million of them just doing their art, doing their work, making their movies, making their music, and here we we are kind of like I feel like for me, I can speak for myself, music wise, I mean, I'm still trying to find out where my where I can connect musically in terms of Vietnamese music. And it's difficult. Yeah. So what you end up doing is, is various kinds of either uh, ideological compromise or, or just making do with what you have, right? So, so as, as a young person, I mean, to some extent, I, I, I'm just like, well, I guess I'm just going to listen to uh, Sue Boy and listen to like, uh, you know uh, who's who's big right now? Big Fung is big right now. Like everyone Wowie. loves Big Fung. 
Yeah, like, well, but like, you know, like so, so, so. I, I mean, I do listen to to the music from Vietnam right now, and and I think that's for me personally. Uh, it, consistently listening to kind of young people's popular music from Vietnam has been a thing that's only happened for me consistently in the past, I say, three or four years. Like before that, was, I would like pop in, see how they doing. Oh, sound pretty good, and I would Checking back, in, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah and, and come back out. But like these days is where I, I, yeah, I can say like, all right, uh, Spotify, play my chill Vietnamese R&B but, but do you, you know, playlist, and I, I like I listen to it like you know on the regular. Do you yeah? Do you play it? with a researcher's mindset or do you play it with an individual's mindset to enjoy it and you're driving in the car and you're just like cruising to this you know Vietnamese movie. I mean, both man I mean like I, I, I think it's hard to say that like I'm, I'm like listening to like Quang Dao Ke Bong and I'm like not just listening to that as a researcher right I mean that song's hilarious regardless and it, and it bumps and 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 like if I'm listening to that song and I'm riding in my car I ain't doing it as a researcher I just like like that song uh, yeah. Which is which is amazing that a person like me, born and raised in the states, can have that experience with Vietnamese music. I, I mean, I, I think that is a that's a beautiful thing. It's a big move, right? right? And and that's not to say that the things that are happening in the in in the community here doesn't have value. So I think one of the important things that I that I always want to remind people about is that the Vietnamese government did us dirty when it came to the music of South Vietnam before 75. Like, like you cannot deny that. It'd be, it'd be like if like the Germans took over in, in uh, you know, the UK and then like destroyed like the Beatles catalog. I mean, like the timeline doesn't work out, but like yeah. it has the same kind of, has the same kind of resonance, right? Uh, and and the the problem there is you they ba I mean they basically banned everything so and, and these days it's opened up enough that as long as the song doesn't directly mention war uh, as long as it isn't clearly from the perspective of South Vietnamese soldiers or the South Vietnamese Republic, then like as long as it's as loosey goosey and kind of blurry enough, they'll let it slide, right? But that was only recent. And, and there's still situations where you will see a song in the past year go back and forth in terms of the government's permission to, uh, to allow it. And, 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 and even when the national government lets a song through, uh, I've seen cases in the past year or two where local governments uh, in, in certain towns, especially in the north, where there, uh, yes, some, some towns are still pretty you know, pro, pro the, the communist revolution, right? So in, in those places, you, you seem to go a little bit overboard on, on banning a, a, a lot of the music as well. Like that's true. That's a historical reality, which me means that for whatever else it was doing, the, the diaspora community had to be the repository to for maintaining some of the music. Now, I think that I think the diaspora has to reckon with the fact that they are discovering right now that people in Vietnam were doing the same thing. <laughs> that that they were for a while they were the only ones doing it, and they had to do it because there was no connection to Vietnam. I think these days you're finding like man, there's like dumpster divers in Vietnam looking for like rec old records and like piecing things together. Sometimes the folks in Vietnam these days have a more complete idea. Of the of the mm -hmm. musical culture in the '60s 
than a lot of us do. Like, I mean, I'm talking like people like our age, even right? Like, like, yeah, like they're, they're going through and like, and and um, and they hate that the government bans X Y Z song, right? Um, so that's something that that I think, the, uh, especially people like like the first generation has to deal with. Like, like I'm cool with it. Like, to me, it to- makes total sense. It got banned. You know what happens when people ban things is that it gets more popular. Yeah, yeah. there's yeah, people there's are added like, layers like, to things. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, I I think the diaspora had a tendency in part because there's no connect- connection other than I remember my parents would or, or uh, my dad especially would send the occasional letter back to Vietnam in like the 80s and 90s, right? And that was the best you could do. But uh, since then, we've reconnected and we've realized that there was the struggle was alive in Vietnam as well. That the people kept the music alive there as well, and 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 that it's that it's it's more complicated than like everything coming all of the cultural production coming out of Vietnam is made by the party, right? It's not it's not like that. Yeah. And, and uh, you and you that's ever something that we have to reckon with? You ever study? Um, and this is going to be just a weird tangent, but I have to ask it. Did you have you ever studied um, why European disco new wave got so big in our community? In the diaspora, um, some people have done the research into this, and I haven't done it in super detail. Um, but just like a you know a quick uh, yeah. story, yeah. I think there are a couple. I think there are a couple of threads that are happening at the same time. So so one, um, there was a connection, even no matter how tenuous, with people in Vietnam, in particular. Uh, people were still coming over as refugees up through the 90s, right? I mean, like, like th- there's still people coming from Vietnam. Uh, I mean, I mentioned Sidan, for example, right? It's like, 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 so, like, dude comes, I think, I don't remember the exact year, but it's mid-90s, mid- right? And, and so they bring with them a particular sensibility about music, uh, and one of those things was that vi- vi- in Vietnam, they were more familiar with European new wave than they were with the American French new wave. So you had that happening on one end. On the other end, in the diaspora itself, even though by the 90s, most of the production of music in the diaspora was centralized around Orange County, right? It's still large chunks of it were still in Paris and had historical connections to Paris and to the rest of Europe. So, so then you had that thread uh, of kind of, of music coming in as well, right? So, so, so you had connections to, to Vietnamese artists in, who were still working or had worked and, and lived in Europe itself, particularly in and around Paris. Then you had people coming from Vietnam, kind of new blood, who were fam- more familiar with European uh, dance music than they were with American dance music. And then these people were then becoming the producers and, and music arrangers for Asia and Tunya and everybody, right? So those things come together. Um, and then I think this, so, so that stuff is historical, but not on my kind of conjectural level, yeah. I think that's happening at the same time then Vietnamese people kind of just like, you know, like I was saying about myself, we, you know, we're always trying to find a way to make the thing our own, right? And, and so in America, American new wave is American new wave, 
but you could just, just I mean, we definitely in, in the 90s, we definitely also just covered American New Wave songs, right? There's plenty of those as well. But I think another thing is like showing and proving that you had a different sensibility about the world, that you had access to something of that that your average American didn't. Uh, did, did not have access to, right? That, that, that we were cosmopolitan in a different way than maybe your average American music consumer. So then that's happening, I think at the same time, uh, either consciously or unconsciously. Um, yeah, because a lot of us couldn't, uh, well, it, it depends. I mean, it was a, a very clear line of demarcation between the Cure, Depeche Mode, uh, Joy Division, exactly. uh, New Order, versus fancy modern know, talking modern talking <laughs> bad boys blue yeah. cc catch you know it was yeah. it was very clear um but i and my brother were old enough to enjoy really really enjoy both of them you know the british new wave yeah. or american new wave versus you know the german or um italian sort of like very different um identities and it, it was almost yeah. like okay well if you listen to that British side of new wave, then you were, it's just a, a, a completely different mindset. And, and yeah. Italian, or European disco is different. Well, it's, I mean, so you, you were feeling it at the time, like- I was feeling uh, both, for you, for, I, I was feeling yeah, both, yeah, so, both of it. So, so, so for, for you, when you, like, what, what was like, like the kind of existential feeling like of the two, like, like how, did it feel like you were, more European when you were listening to like CC? No, I, that's a really good question. Or? I felt more Vietnamese when I was attached to modern talking, right? Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah. I mean, this is, that's part and, of and being that's Vietnamese. Like, like the difference in and of itself is sometimes enough. This is me as a semiotician speaking. Sometimes the difference is a signifier you want rather than the specific thing, right? You just want to signify that it, or represent that the thing you're doing is different and it doesn't need to matter what the difference is based upon right because you're you're trying to you're trying to reconcile something in yourself you already feel different right so so you're trying to find music that will speak to your difference and sometimes that, that's and, and as we've said you know before the music that speaks to our difference isn't available in vietnamese or for vietnamese audiences yeah, in but itself. i mean i would even simplify it even more because as i think back to being 14 or 18 or 15 I wasn't thinking that complex. My thinking was very simple. And it was just like when you heard sort of the British new wave, it just brought a different sort of feeling. You know, it was just much more, uh, ironically, much more American. And then you listen to yeah. the European disco, which was also called new wave. It gave you this sort of um, Asian sensibility because all of yeah. your elders were I listening to it. I feel like the synthesizer was a really important part of that. Like the the particular way continental Europe uses the synthesizer during that period just sounds different to my ear, right? Like the, and and, and I haven't like sat down and really like analyzed it, but I, I mean, I just, I just compare like modern talking to the cure. <laughs> like yeah, the, the, it's very, the sound is completely different. It's very different though. Um, I mean, erasure to me would probably be the what is right in the middle that shares so much mm -hmm. of the british uh new wave and then the um uh european new wave it they, yeah. they have very similar yeah i mean we can get into music theory all day long that's his, that's his own thing right yeah yeah it's his own but uh what let, let's go back to um when you started going on montreal to study uh Dunbao. so 
Um, I so then I, I guess the, the way we got here was basically to say that I was looking for a way to access the virtuosity, the skill, the talent of Vietnamese music. Um, that that to my mind at the time as an 18 year old matched the way I was playing a violin. And to me, I had watched Tay Phan Nhu Tang play on Paris by Night. Uh, it was pretty clear to me that he was a very different creature than everyone else around him. And like and 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 yet he was playing for the pop songs, right? So like I think there was something to that as well that. I mean, if anyone looks at my musical output, like quickly realizes that I that I like to mix mix it up. That I, I like playing Danbo in popular uh, idioms. So I think the fact that he that he did that at the time spoke to me, despite the fact that his playing, even for someone who doesn't know anything about the music, clearly comes from a deep reservoir of like historical and cultural knowledge. You can't play the way he plays without know. studying. You know, you know, a certain way. What do you mean by so, that? Can you kind of like break that down? Because yeah. that's a really interesting topic. Like just because somebody plays a certain way, how do we interpret the context that they know all this knowledge and information? So let me try to not get too deep into the technical part of it, but uh, let, I'll just say that um, for example, uh, Tai Tang, his background is in Nhạc Chèo, so Northern Vietnamese opera. And in fact, he started out playing drums, like so Chèo drums, before he started playing Dan Bo. What that means is in his mind, there is a sense of rhythm hmm. from Chèo music. And jail music rhythm is a extraordinarily complex rhythm to understand, to like, to get into, to immerse yourself in, uh, like, like, and, and to have that sense of rhythm requires, as he did, to playing be it. in it since the since the age of four, right? Like, I mean, like he he's been playing it since since you know since he he was a kid, and and so that's what I mean. And it's it's that people that the way Vietnamese people have traditionally learned music has involved um, a, a pedagogical system, a, a way of learning that uh, requires observation and continuous repetition of, and in that regard, it's very similar to playing classical music. Like you're just continuously yeah. playing this line until like you play it like you assume the way Baroque people played it, right? Um, and so the same thing happens uh, in, in, in Vietnamese traditional music. And, and, and in that sense is why I mean like, it's clear when you listen to classical music, when you, it's clear when you listen to Shostakovich, the, to, to Bach, to whoever, right? That, that they are drawing from a deep reservoir of, of cultural understanding of, of their understanding of how yeah. music works. And, and if you listen to a very good uh, jail singer or, or to any other genre from the north like Gachu or like Gachu Hadvan or any of those genres, 
a person who's really good will give you that same kind of feeling. And the same thing with the South, right? If you listen to Dunkatepu, like a really good Gailung singer or anything like that, they will give you the sense that the sounds coming from them, either as a musician or a singer, are, if, if not a repetition of something from before, then at least it rhymes with the past, yeah. right? Um, Makes sense, yeah. And so that's that's what I that's what I wanted to be able to do to say I I'm an adept at the violin now I am able to uh, speak the, the the language of of classical music at, at a high enough level that I'm singing the top of this orchestra I'm I don't really plan on being like uh, you know like a, a yo yo ma type right but but I know what it would take to to, to move into that direction. Like, but why is it that I don't know how to access the same sorts of worlds, uh, kind of intellectual artistic worlds in Vietnamese mm. context? So that's that's where becoming a Danbo player uh, became something that I wanted to do. And that's uh, how my teacher took it. Because basically that first year, we did it like I was going up to the mountains and studying from like a grandmaster, right? Like. Um, and, and so my, my, in fact, my parents went with me so that they could formally hand me off to my teacher, uh, just as you would do in the old days. Um, and, and that was just the first year, obviously, they didn't have to do it after that, because we had our own relationship to build upon. But uh, it was important to them that, that we did it that way. And, and, and I think he valued the relationship more because we did it that way. And, uh, and so wait so, a minute. So there, there's yeah. this little boy or you know teenager that goes into yeah. this man's house. I mean, for the summer, right? And I mean, you your parents hand you off, and and I mean, so is it understood that you're going to be practicing alongside this man daily for what two hours, four hours, six hours a day? Doesn't the guy have to work? I mean, how does this work in modern Montreal times? Okay, so I mean, he's. He, he is a musician, he's a professional musician. Uh, he, he had won like, like the like top Danbo uh, awards in Vietnam multiple times before moving to Germany and then over to uh, Canada. <coughs> so his time was devoted to teaching students uh, and, and to recording for Twing Ai whenever they asked or et cetera, right? Um, so we set it up that he was free in the summer and that first year, I think I probably went to his house probably three or four times a week for two or three hours at a time. Um, and that was, that was good enough because I just needed to learn how to play the instrument technically at the beginning, right? To, um, I, he, at the time he had, he had started doing uh, uh, videos for you to teach yourself how to play. So I, I had already gotten those from him uh, and and so I had the basics down, and as a violin player, the, the the kind of basics of getting a good sound, getting pitch, those kind of things, I could pick up pretty quickly. Um, but then the then the kinds of things that have to do specifically with Vietnamese music, um, the modalities of Vietnamese music, and, and what yeah. I mean by that, in in, in music, um, you've got scales, and and those and those scales are attached to certain pitches. Well, those pitches are very different in Vietnamese. Uh, I mean, I mean, people sometimes would just say, "Oh, Vietnamese music is pentatonic," and just offhandedly. 
Not technically. Like Vietnamese music is pentatonic in certain, like, or certain genres of Vietnamese music have modes that are pentatonic. Even those pentatonic modes have pitches that can fluctuate between different, um, right. you know, like higher or lower. And one of my early struggles was figure out how to not hear Western sounds wow. while I was learning how to play. Wow. So my teacher would constantly say like, that sounds like a perfect C, but it's too sharp for, for wow. um, or for, or for like, like or whatever it was that I, I was trying to figure out at the time. Um, and we alternated between studying really traditional repertoire and pop songs. Pop songs are easier. Like the pop songs, if you get it mostly right and you just kind of you know play play it up for for the emotion, like like I think that first year I could play long mat well enough to make my mom cry. But yeah. like, but I remember at the end of that year he asked me like, well, well what do you really want to learn? And I was like, well, um, I my grandparents really love guy love guy Lum, and so what I'd like to do is learn learn Mongol. I'm gonna learn how to play Mongol. So the, for, for anyone who, who's not familiar with that, that's the main song uh, whenever people kind of do like the, the, the long thing and then people clap and then they fall into the song, right? That's Mongol. Um, Is it equivalent to an, an aria in Italian opera? It starts as an aria, but but Mongol itself is, is very rhythmic. Uh, so like, so it it's kind of is, but I mean, it happened and it happens so many times. Like the the structure of Onko is something that I I don't know. Do we have time to go over the structure of Onko? It's uh, yeah. Why yeah? Why not? Okay. Is... So 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 like um back in the twenties, there was a song written, and at the time it was in this kind of new medium, but it was called Zako Failan. And 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 Zach Wailan was super popular, like and ended up being played played on the radio everywhere. This was everything. a song? A song. Okay. Zach Wailan. What a year song. was this? And where? Uh back down in around back uh, Bakliu area. So in so in the south. Okay. In the south. In the, the south, Delta. In the Delta. Uh I, I want to say 28, but don't quote me on the exact year. It's in the 20s. Um uh, but in any case, this song becomes super popular. Uh and and so the, all of the kind of traditional Southern musicians are, are playing it, right? Yeah, it's, it's basically, it's like everyone's covering it, right? All the time. Yeah. And so everyone gets really good at playing it. And so they start screwing around with it. Um, one, one of the first things they do with it is it was originally written in bass in Bak, which is a uh, kind of a happy mode. Uh, like 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 a like a major key basically, mm -hmm. and and then people started switching it over to hui nam, and then making it uh, what is uh, a basically the equivalent of a minor key, so minor making key? it sound okay. sadder. Okay. Yeah. So basically, like it be the feeling is the same as changing from major to minor key. Okay. Right. So they did they did that first, and then they started embellishing it more, and they started adding different lyrics. So they would just swap out new lyrics whenever they did their their uh, version. Uh, their version of it, right? Uh, at basically the equivalent of now Kai Lung shows, right? So, but one of the things they did was then they stretched it out, uh, the, the timing, the tempo of it, they slowed it down by half and they stretched everything out. And and so this, and then, um, and they sang it that way for a while. So it's a little bit sadder and slower, okay? Now the original, so, and then, so let's say that that song was, uh, in, 
was in one tempo, they basically have the tempo and had it run twice as long. Then they did that again, probably around, I would guess the 40s would be my guess, like is when that starts to happen. I'm not really sure, but uh, so let's say the song's in duple. Basically, one me- if one measure was two beats, that measure is now four beats. Four beats yeah. And then they did it again, so that measure was eight beats. They did it again to make that measure 16 beats. And then at the, at the height of Gai Lung's popularity, they, they stretched out to those two beats to become 32 beats. And the original notes were just goalposts for you to hit every oh, eight beats or so. Yeah. Which is why Gai Lung now, you can hear everyone playing whatever the hell they want for eight beats. And then like everyone coming together hit the same note because that note is the original oh, note from that go, wow. from that go by Lang. Um, but, but then, so, so that's, that's why when, when you said like, is it a song? Well, complicated. Vong Go now is a structure uh, of, of six, um, of, of kind of six verses, I'll, I'll say. And each of those verses is basically played so that every eight beats, everyone has to play the same note or, and the singer has to land on the same note. But everything else is more or less uh, freestyle within uh, a mode, uh, a mode that was based on Hei Nam Hei Wan, uh, or basically the sad modes of Southern music. But now it kind of is its own kind of uncle mode which is like those two, but a slightly different. Okay, in part is, any, of the is anybody else studying this except you? Like, how do we, like, how do I know, like, what you're telling me? And I believe you, I'm, I'm just yeah, no, it's, yeah. building some infrastructure in my head here. Is there other people that are studying this in Vietnam or the United States or diaspora? In, in Vietnam, there's lots of people. I mean, I mean, like, but it's all in Vietnamese, right? So, yeah. so like, no one's gonna be sitting there explaining it to you. Um, in, in the US, the, the main scholar who's really studied Southern Vietnamese music this way, I would say, is Alexander Cannon. Uh, he's he studied with a he studied Dan Chang with Nguyen Bao, uh, and in, in Saigon for a while, and and it's con- really connected with that with with the Dun Gatai world. So, uh, but his his research is is more sociological, more ethnomusicological in the cultural anthropology sense. So so he doesn't sit around like doing the kind of music theory angle a lot. The kind of heyday of this sort of what I'm describing now as as a kind of that sort of research was in the time period of uh, um, uh, uh, and and he uh, so he I think did his dissertation at Sorbonne um, taught in Paris for a very long time uh, in sometime in the 2000s, I forget exactly, moved back to Vietnam. Actually, was one of his last visitors before he went back to Vietnam. I think I was like I visited him that that summer before I went back to Vietnam. So, so there are this branch of ethnomusicology in Vietnam and and the diaspora exists. Yeah, but it's not in English. Like it's very large. I mean, like so, like so. So Jen Ren Kay writes. A dissertation and some books that are very detailed about the way Vietnamese modalism works, about the way Vietnamese music theory works. But that's and he writes in French. Vietnamese. Yeah, oh, that stuff's in French, right? So I mean, and, and he has he has stuff in Vietnamese too. But like his so his stuff is in French and in Vietnamese. Uh, there is not someone who is all in on doing this sort of work, as far as I know, in English, uh, other than Alexander Cannon. Um, and is is the music still alive? 
or is it on its way out? Is it fading out? So there's not one Vietnamese music, right? One genre. So it depends on what, uh, which genre you're talking about. And, and, and um, let me give you some examples. So like royal court music, Nhạc Cung Đình, will survive uh, because uh, it's really popular to be played uh, in Hue whenever the tourists come by. Mm. Which means there's always gonna be somebody playing it. But what, what, it, what it means is that there's no development of it. Like they're just playing the repertoire as it sits. Like Nhạc Cung Đình Hue sits in a certain way, for example. Whereas like, like Nhạc Cái Lương continues to be developed, uh, continues to kind of grow and change uh, and and average people, average people our age living down the delta like to sing Kai Lung songs. I mean, it's it's uh, it's normal, right? Uh, so so the guy that do Kai Lung, Bangko, that kind of stuff, that that still kind of survives in its own kind of way. Though though it is not as popular as it used to be, uh, obviously. Um, and and then this there's different other genres in the north. Um, one of my favorite genres, genres of the North is uh, Gatru, uh, which is related to uh, Ngamto, so, so basically reciting poetry to music, right? And, uh, but Gatru was associated with uh, the high class folks and to, to the aristocracy, which meant that when like the land reform happened in North Vietnam and you were killing aristocracy, one of the things you did before you even did that was to stop them from, from playing their music. Playing music. So, wow. so Gatru went underground uh, it's still around, uh, and and actually one of the funny things is that it's now a UNESCO World Intangible Heritage, which means Vietnam pours a lot of money and resources into keeping Gatru alive now, despite the fact of you know for decades basically pushing it underground. Uh, they did the same thing to uh, to Hat Van, uh, what we sometimes call the Lindong, right? So like a spiritual possession music, uh, which is just, I, I really like it because it's some like the most fun upbeat music in the kind of, kind of traditional repertoires. But that, you know, as the old kind of Marxist saying goes, is like religion is the opiate of the people. So they got rid of spiritual possession. Mm. And so then it, it hung around. There's a lot of really hilarious Hat uh, Van songs that uh, are like about Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> so like, so like all the singers like, well, how am I going to keep singing Hat Van now? I guess I was singing, a, singing about Dear Leader. Uh, and that's how... That's how it survived, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but everything survives in its own way, and 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 some things have survived more successfully than others. I guess is my point. What do you do with um, on a on a applied practical application level with the knowledge that you accumulate as an ethnomusicologist? Beats me, man. Um, <laughs> not, I mean, this this is a struggle. Um, the truth of the matter is I don't think our community is equipped to put the sorts of energy and financial resources into uh, the kind of uh, cultural programming uh, that would say put my expertise to work. And I'll be, I mean, it's very frankly speaking, right? So what I have to do is basically be kind of a hustler about it, be kind of entrepreneurial about it, um, and find ways to make it Monetize. interesting. Monetize. 
uh, I, I'm not monetizing much lately, but I have to have that kind of mentality, right? So even if I'm not making money of it, if I want to like, like kind of spread it and, 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 and proselytize about the music or anything like that, I still had to think in those terms. I have to think in like the terms of social media, I have to think of uh, in the terms of marketing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because our, our community is, is not set up like for me to just sit here and like research traditional music and like how it affects the diaspora, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or even to write up about it, which is not equipped to do those things. Ironically, I mean, like, I think in the kind of, in, in the world of Western art music, in the world of people who dig kind of world music as a category, yeah, there's something there, but then you're not doing it for, for Vietnamese people. You're doing, doing it for largely rich white people. Yeah. I mean, like, right? So, That's so, the truth, yeah. So for example, like um, uh, Vanessa Van Eng Va, she's a Dajeng player, Danbo player, exquisite musician. I don't wanna, and, and I don't wanna say anything, and I don't mean to say anything bad about her because I think she's awesome, but she works in the, uh, in part because she came out of a, of a conservatory background herself, she works in that kind of art music sphere. And she also does a bunch of work in the, in the community to, to spread Vietnamese music and, and get people to enjoy it and understand it. So that's why I don't want to say anything like, like I don't want to say like she's doing anything bad. She's doing what she needs to do, right? But the, the truth of the matter is the way where you find success, where you're going to find a reputation for yourself, you know, is in that world. And then you, and then as a side effect, you can bring that back down to the community after the fact, right? Yeah, yeah. But I don't think you're going to make it in the community first. And then, I mean, like my teachers basically went back to Vietnam. So yeah. just, I, I think he still lives part of the time uh, in uh, Toronto these days, but he spends a lot of time yeah, in Vietnam. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I really value the work that you do because it's uh, if you don't do it and if you don't record it, nobody will. Uh, we talk about this quite often on on you know the show here that the history of certain segments of the population in Vietnam, uh, both on a diaspora uh, level and back in Vietnam in certain parts of uh, the dec different decades, it's gone. It's gone. I was talking about the the um, sort of the political um, era of 1954 to 1975 mm -hmm. of the South. That sort of that structural government um, and how things were kind of ran. Where does that exist? How can you find it when all the guys that kind of ran that that era fled? They left the country. They went everywhere across the world. They never really, I don't know if they, did they, did somebody record the things that went on during that period? But as I'm talking to the elders, you know, in their eighties and nineties now, they're saying that kind of like that period, there's a lot, a lot of things that happened, but where are the South Vietnamese voices uh, of that era today? Where can you ar find archive, archival notes or books on it? So there are, scholars working in these areas, um, I, I guess on, on the practical level of where would you find this stuff as a researcher, um, there have been attempts um, to archive a lot of newspapers <coughs> from the period. Um, that's, 
I, I have used that stuff myself. It's incredibly valuable just to get a sense of like yeah. what was going on at a certain moment, like um, of, of how different, I, I mean, when, when, we, when we hear like the first generation talk about the freedom of South Vietnam, which is a contentious thing, it's complicated how free different things, you know, how things, free things were for different people and, 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 and whatnot what they what they will bring up to you is one the freedom of the press and two the freedom of music right of musical expression right and the reason the freedom of press is brought up is because there were a fuck ton of newspapers at the time like there were just a bunch of newspapers across a range of left wing to right wing yeah. uh to mainstream uh kind of like kind of middle centrist and, and, and all of them were vying for the tensions basically of the Saigon intelligentsia and like the kind of just Saigon population in general, right? Yeah. Um, and what you get from that is a pretty good sense. At, I mean, you have to uh, filter it through the understanding that these people are trying to get your views the same way yeah. you have to filter like social media, social media and be like, today, yeah. like they're trying to capture your eyeballs. They're trying to do the same thing. They're always trying to do the same thing. Uh, it's just accelerated now. Uh, but like the same impulse is there. So you have to kind of filter for that. But once you do filter for that, you get interesting views about, uh, about different aspects of, of Vietnamese culture during those time periods. So people are, you know, people are doing that work. People are looking at 54, 75, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, and, and scholars here in America are, are doing that work. Um, when it comes specifically to the music of that time period, I think that kind of stuff, um, actually is not happening in the academy. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to do, um, whether, I don't know how long I'll stay in academia and, and what, in what capacity uh, once I finish my dissertation, one, one of the things that I'm trying to do is to insert into the, the picture of Vietnam 5470, uh, South Vietnam 5475, a sense of the music as something vibrant, as something that that was uh, that was multifaceted, as something that real people were engaged in making, and that that is in, in direct continuity with uh, the music that you know that we listen to now, and sometimes we feel is a little bit old school, a little bit uh, you know dusty, right? Um, but I think that music, the, the and that's why I mean, like outside the academy, where that stuff gets preserved is in kind of the hearts of fans in their own personal archives, et cetera. I, I don't know if you like watch like uh, any of like the local programming, Vietnamese programming here, but like uh, Jimmy Nhat-ha, who's roughly, you know, my age-ish. Yeah, I love him Maybe a actually. little younger. Yeah. I think he's like, a great, he's doing great work. Yeah, I mean, that kid is a repository yeah of he like, knows everything i am so impressed by by him shout out yeah. to jimmy i i watch his stuff and and you're like you really start to wonder how much preparation he did before or is this something that he's always sort of like followed and he just it's become him this you know? is who i mean this is who jimmy is like Have you as, met him yeah like like i i I'm not super great friends with him. I, you know, um, I'd like to, to spend more time time with him, but like I know him, uh, and 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 we always have great conversations. And the things we talk about are, are like this stuff, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And and um, but but he, I 
I would love to work with him more because I feel like what I bring in terms of cultural analysis, he brings an equal weight in terms of just sheer archival knowledge, but in his head, head. right? It's in his head. It's insane. That's the crazy thing. Like he also has a, he also has materials. So that's the cool thing, right? Like, like he, he keeps all these things. And, and I think Jimmy's a sweet guy. And, 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 and so he's always talking to these elders, always getting interviews from them, and and th- and they love him. And I think to, to his credit, he's he deserves that love. He deserves yeah. that, that adoration. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and but and, and and he deserves that trust, right? Like I mean, the 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 Vietnamese community here in Little Saigon, uh, particularly the artistic community, got hit by COVID pretty fast and pretty hard. It felt, I felt like constantly, sometimes they didn't even say it was COVID. They just, you would just hear about Vietnamese singers, artists, musicians dying every couple of weeks, someone big, right? And no one ever said it was COVID, but like, it was a big deal. And one, uh, but one constant in that was Jimmy. Jimmy was like, always be like, yeah, so-and-so is in the hospital. We are checking up on that guy. Like, wow. like I think, I, I, I think like, um, I think Ang was sick and like Jimmy like caught up in the hospital and just made sure that he was fine. And then like told us all about it after the fact. Dude is on top of that because I mean, I think that's the thing like 54 through 75 as a musical moment, there's still people alive from that period, right? And then also there's the people, you know from the period right after that who were c- carrying their legacy, right? So one, one person that, that I've gotten to know over time is uh is Chukho, right? Uh, formerly Asia. of uh, formerly of Asia, now devoting his time basically completely to SBTN, mm-hmm. right? And and one thing that I really value in him is he always took the time to kind of doubt doubt to develop young talent. Now, some people will argue with the fact that he develops the young talent to play, you know, golden oldies. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is the dude cares about young people and, and he has always cared about young people. Uh, and, and, and so, and he has cared about them enough to want to preserve that, that era of music for their sake, even if they don't want it. Or even if they don't know that they Yeah, it. exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and I think that's, that's been an invaluable kind of uh, effort and it's an effort that doesn't get you profits. At the end of the day, we, you and I may not sit down all the time to listen to Nyak Vang, Bolero, you know, or, or, or Nyak Tintin or any, any of that stuff on a regular basis, right? Uh, I do more these days because of research, but like- I, I grew up with that stuff in my, my, yeah. my parents and uncles, but I don't listen to it today. I mean- Yeah, yeah, and, you, yeah. And, and even I don't listen to it daily, right? Like I have moments you know, where I'll listen to it, but uh, it being there. And, and so I guess one of the things that's really important is less the fact that, um, that the stuff exists, but whether or not your average person knows who to connect to, to access it or, or how to get to it, right? So like, I, I think one thing about um, the Vietnamese diaspora is a, it's, it's not a disconnection of knowledge per se. I don't think that, to, I mean, I talked to a lot of uh, older Vietnamese people. It's not like they know more than me about Nhạc Vang at this point, right? But I think 
one thing that is lost is the knowledge of who to go to. Like right, if you right. talk if you talk to an old Vietnamese person, they don't know something about the music, but they'll tell you you should call this guy. This guy he'll remember it, or you should call this woman. Like she'll remember it, and they have that that knowledge, which is even more important than the actual archive in and of itself. Now there's a clock on it, right? Because everyone's yeah. dying, right? Yeah. But that's I mean that that is where, where like. I, I'm a naturally introverted person, but the one thing that will make me go out there and talk to old Vietnamese people is knowing that like somewhere out there is the goods. And if I don't figure out where the goods are by talking to people, then even if they are still there, no one would know where to get yeah. them, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the motivating factor. And I think like, like for Jimmy too, like, like, like that dude is like racing, like he's like the flash racing across time. Yeah, you know? I, I am, he, he's definitely uh, an inspiration for me. Um, he focuses more on entertainment, but I'm, I, I'll go across the spectrum uh, as long as it has to do with Vietnamese people throughout the world, past, present and future. You know, I'll, I'll sit and, and, and have a long conversation, but what Jimmy does is, you know, he's so niched down with what he does and he's so good at it. And I recognize that I've, I've watched so many hours of his stuff, you know, like Tu Khan Li, Kyu Jing, you know, all of these names. And I'm like, why would I even go near that stuff? You know, yeah. he, he brings so much richness to that, that, uh, that world. Um, but, you know, it's, it's all predominantly in, in Vietnamese. So yeah, it's all Vietnamese and, and, um, I mean, one, I think one funny thing is that what Jimmy does is amazing, but but I uh, but also kind of ma making my own inroads in that world is that these people are profoundly approachable. Yeah, and, and a lot of them are super sweet and kind, and will give you everything that you ask of them in terms of knowledge and and right, right. And, and advice, like. Like Kyu Jing didn't know who I was when I first came to her house, but like. She, yeah, you know, she's she's. We a spent very... an entire afternoon talking to her. She took me out to like lunch, and she's just gives giving. all of herself. She's right? very giving. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she gave me four hours on the podcast. I was so you know, impressed. Like, yeah, it's you know? it's it's crazy, and and and, she, and she's will, and and I think she's not an exception to to in, in terms of, of the, the folks from from that generation. Like they're all willing, if if you're willing to to take the time to to interact with them, then they're willing to like you. Know, to give that back to you. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I want to talk about the development of pop music um, as it relates to when pop arrived in Vietnam to today. Uh, yeah, I've always been, I've always been sort of disappointed with the growth or the evolution of pop music. I just felt like it's just sort of the instrumentation has changed throughout the, the decades, but I never felt like we moved beyond anything, you know, basic one, four, five chords. And, you know, it's very the same throughout, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And, you know, I did, I know you did mention a, a period that we were stunted there for a bit, but are we growing musically? And what, you, you, I'll go, I'll go, this far you know when you look at american music you know we have um we have jazz we have rap we have and all of these are definitely linked 
to the African-American struggles. And it's like, if you put like a little, you know, um, something in, in, in a oyster shell and it rubs itself and it becomes a pearl. And this sort of like this idea of oppression and slavery in the US created these movements of, of jazz and of rap. And like you said in the beginning, these are sort of um, uh, reactions to the time. We as a people have been through a lot of pain but where is the the change and the evolution in our music and the and the and the really the outcry of 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 a style change within the music? So, I mean, it's funny that you that you use the metaphor of a pearl because of course Saigon was Han Gong like the the pearl of the Orient, right? In in, in the old in Indochina time period, right? And and part of that was that. Saigon was felt even by the French who had taken over like this is some kind of like cultural phenomenon this place right there's something there's something gathering cool about and, it yeah like yeah there's something hip here right and, and, and they felt it uh, it's I mean like they put their they, they, they put their administrative offices in Vietnam right like, like they felt something cool about Vietnam in that sense they wanted to, to be there um, but I think one thing we have to do is disentangle our notions of what popular music is uh, to really get a picture of the richness of popular music. Things change. So let me talk 275 first, because war changes everything, right? And the, and the end of war changed everything. So so let's let's talk up through 75 first. Um, if you look at the development of popular music in Vietnam, you have to, it begs the question first, what counts as popular, right? And, 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 and in ethnomusicology in a lot of, in, in pop music studies in general, like there's a lot of different ways to define it. But I mean, if you just go with the straight sense of it's the music that everyone was listening to, right? Then what was the music that everyone was listening to? Well, the most popular thing that was before like broadcast TV was a real big thing was like gang hockey, gang look, they're just right. like traveling these, these troops, Kailung, yeah. troops just going from town to town, right? So then Gailung in the South in particular, all the way up through close to the end there, right? Uh, close to 75 there are one of the primary ways that music gets out to the populace, literally, right? So then what can we say about the development of the music in those troops, right? Is one, is one of the, and, you, and I think one thing you can say is that it developed a lot. It changed a lot in the time from the, say early 1900s up, up, up through 75. When you were starting out, of course, in, in, in the Mekong Delta, what were the traditional instruments? I mean, that game uh, was important, right? That they bad, that knee, those kind of things were important. Um, what is the most important instrument in Gailung today and starting roughly in the 60s, 50s, 60s? The guitar. Hmm. The guitar, usually the electric guitar, like, I mean, like some of them use acoustic guitars, but like largely these dudes were into electric guitars and they put a pickup in uh, you know, or, or, or they hooked up to an amp 
and they 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 cut out, out they, the they carved out the fretboard. Uh, so we call it guitar finlong. So the fret is is carved finlong, and they learned to play those guitars in the idiom of of gailung and gaitaipil, right? That is a major development mm. um, in terms of because I, I think at the very beginning I mentioned that that when Zako Huilang moved to becoming Gai, to Vanko, right? So it, it's a, as it stretched out and became Vanko, it, it changed its uh, key, right? It, it changed its mode, and then it stretched out in tempo after that. In that time period, the mode developed further because the guitar has a Western fretboard. So Hei Vanko ended up having the tones of Western music mixed together with the tones of Hei Nam and Hei Wan, right? If you want to play Hei Wan straight, you got to go and play, play it on like the game uh, or the jang, right? Like you can't play Hei Wan like, like the way it was like played in like the 30s. Right on a on on a on a on a gailung guitar, so that was a huge development. Our ears changed, like the the way that people in the Mekong Delta, for example, heard music and how it should sound, how traditional music should sound, changed. The other thing is um, gailung itself. Do you know what the word gailung means? No. Mm -mm. Lung refers to like a, like a long form play or a musical, and gai means to renovate, as in like gai dao or you know gai kek, all those words, mm, got right? It. Yeah, yeah. So gai lung means the renovated opera, the renovated musical drama. Why? Because it arose out of genres that were more like hat boy. I don't know, you're saying like hat boy, or uh, it looks like picking opera. Right, uh, out of genres like that, but intersecting with uh, French dramas, realism, mm. intersecting with French dramas, uh, tendency to go for the kind of inner monologue of its actors and the emotions of the actors and everything. Gai Lung flipped the script on Hat Boy and made it. I mean, Gai Lung doesn't look realist to us. Yeah, but I get it. It, it looks it looks realist compared to Hat Boy. Boy, yeah. Right. And so that's another thing, like, like that, if you think about an average person in the Delta, the first time they experience Gailung, that's a revelation. That is a development. Blown of, away, yeah. Right? It's completely new. Like all of a sudden you got people crying on stage, whereas before you got people in makeup that looks like they're crying on stage, right? Like, I mean, it makes a, it makes a big difference. Um, at the same time, the music itself is also changing. Uh, there's a tendency to, and uh, like like uh, to actually bring pop music into the Gailung stage, right? And like and so some some of the people's favorite Gailung music is actually Tanko music, where like it starts with a pop song and ends with a with Wangko, right? Mm. Uh, like a, a lot of the music that like people listen that like like Finyung, Mengkwing, that crowd, yeah. you know, like in the late '90s, early 2000s, that was really popular with with certain you know people in the diaspora. That was mostly Tanko, Zazuin. It wasn't like straight up Tanka Daitu or like kind of old school Gailung, right? It was the kind of Gailung that was developing in, in the '60s and the '70s, where they like took music from from the pop genres and they brought it in 
and then and and fused it together with with the traditional genres. A little bit more digestible, huh? Yeah, I mean, and then that's why you have a crossover artist like Hong Kong, like that, like like Hong Kong, Miley Huyen, right? They are like the epitome of that kind of rock cool, like the nyak, right? Of of that period, that dude decides to cross over. And where does he cross over to? He crosses over back into Kailung. Mm, right? Because Kailung is the other popular music. It's it, it's like it's like Taylor Swift going back and forth between country music and and pop. And, and, and pop pop, right? Like country music is its own pop. And the only reason it, it, but we recognize that. The only reason we don't recognize Kailung as pop is in part, I think, because of the westernization of our minds. Correct. Correct, correct. Right? It's like, context, right? Yeah, like like we are so in we've internalized orientalism that exotic things from Asia are old, so much so that we can't see that they are new. And mm. Gailung was new. Like in the 50s and 60s and 70s, it looked it before that it barely even existed. I I, I want to say Gailung really became a thing in the 40s. I don't remember the exact dates, but it definitely didn't look like it definitely didn't exist in the 20s uh so you know like it's up to 75 then you have this new thing then after that the problem of course is with any group of people who consider themselves refugees the preservation of what you have takes precedence over creating something new mm. and you can't fault anybody for that right you can't fault anyone running from a war, anyone who thinks that they're about to die, anyone who left their country behind and they're really holding just wants, on. They who just want to eat some gangchua and listen to some gailung, right? Yeah. Right? Like that's all they want. So and, and you can't fault them for that. So obviously, right after 75, things just stop. In Vietnam, they stop politically. Like Vietnam could have chosen to continue to kind of make more popular music, but they were mostly making propaganda music. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, until I would say the mid '80s, things started to pick up in terms of a pop music canon of their own over there. Um, but for the diaspora, we were making new music, but it always had to remind us of something. It was very hard to make new music. For I, I think, if you think about. Um, um, all of the, the the musicians in 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 the diaspora who are still composing, uh, Lam Phuong, for example, right? He recently passed. Yeah. And and I was just thinking about some of his songs. His songs written after '75 sound like his songs written before '75. I don't mean that in a bad sense. And in some sense, like I mean, like the the, the context is different, and uh, and the texts have to do with like being in Paris or being in America or whatever, right? So like, so the the, the imagery and the metaphors they change, but like the idiom and the and and the and the genre that he's working in, very similar to before that. Uh, but who can fault him, right? Like, yeah. And and so I think I, I think that's kind of my struggle always is like. On one level, as a young person, like ah, I really wish you guys made something new, but on another level, I'm like, what? What, what, what? I don't blame you for it. Yeah. <laughs> right? um, now, on a different note, though, there was a constant effort to try to make something cool for us. It just never hit. Right? Stuck. Yeah. Never. Stuck. Yeah. Like so. Like, I mean, 
I like Trish Tweet Tweet Chang. She she was a moment, right? You, you, uh, Trish uh, from Asia. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. She was she, she, was, she, she was a moment. She was our Taylor Swift at the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, she wrote she wrote her own songs. She wrote her own songs, and you had like Cardin that came yeah, in. Asia and, Four, baby. Yeah. Yeah, Asia Four. Then you had Henry Chuk and Chosen. You had all these guys yeah. that came in and tried to. Uh, they tried. Yeah. They yeah. give it the best, uh, you know, and Asia gave them a platform. Paris Bonnet gave them a platform. Yeah, you're right. We as a diaspora didn't really take the bait. Um, yeah, there yeah. was. Well, I, and, and I, I will say this. It's hard to take the bait when you don't speak Vietnamese anymore. That's true. Yeah. Like, or you don't connect but, to the original, you know, mother source. Yeah, like if, if there's not something constantly feeding a, the diaspora, then the diaspora will in and of itself become diluted. I don't mean that in like some kind of value laden sense where like it's, yeah. it's worse because of it. It's just- It's just um, different. Like uh, some, of the, some of the Indian communities like in, in, in like South Africa, I think, right? They don't consider themselves Indian anymore even though they, even though they keep a handful of Indian traditions because like they, they, in that sense, are fully African, right? And, and, and they don't feel a need to go, go back to India regularly or whatever. Um, and and I, th I think about that a lot for, for the diaspora. When, when, you think, when you think about, say, Koreans, for example, and their ability to constantly go back to Vietnam or go back to Korea and, and, and just kind of get re-energized on the kind of cultural production yeah. right of of the homeland um we are not at this stage where that is comfortable across the, the board i mean like all of us are worried about getting like all the time right so like so i mean it, that's becoming um less and less of a concern as we're you know a lot of us are going back uh constantly but you know that but, ex of, but existentially like so, it's so like yeah, I've I've gone back to Vietnam, but there's still some like level where you feel disconnected because yeah, over sure. over, over that thirty years or forty years or however it was since your family last went back to Vietnam, you know, like you don't know anything about the country. It's not it's not the same as like you were continuously going back every five ten years or whatever. We are now on our third generation here in the U.S. with uh, third generation Vietnamese, um, and I think that many of us have become like the Indians in South Africa, like you were describing, um, and not like the Koreans that you're describing. Yeah. I, I wonder if we ever are, and I thought it's, I mean, is it important, but are we ever going to move in the, the directions of the Koreans? Or are we moving more in the directions of the Indians in South Africa? I think that it would be a mistake to make that prediction for everyone. I do think in general, we're more likely to become more diluted in our kind of cultural connections to Vietnam than not. But I think the fact that Vietnam exists and that Vietnam in some ways is, is kind of becoming a cultural center of its own with its own kind of hip circles and spheres uh, provides a connection for future young people. So like, I mean, like one of the things I think about for my daughter, for example, is 
I speak Vietnamese to her as much as I can, but I I have even less of like a uh, there's even less chance of her keeping Vietnamese than there was for me when my parents were trying to raise me in yeah for sure to Salem, right and 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 that's just the way it is right but one thing that I hope for her that will that will be different is that my parents and I think most parents of our generation didn't make it clear what the context of our connections to those sources were and 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 they didn't support us when we did try to make those connections right whether they were wrong or correct or right so what i mean by that is like when when a young like kind of 1.5 second generation and from say like like go back to when we're like, in like the 2000s right for us right and 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 like when, when we're trying to figure out what our relationship to vietnam is what was the most likely thing to happen it was just got shut down shut down they they didn't even ever address it it was so yeah, it, it, exactly. painful it, maybe it, it would just it would just never come out right yeah and 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 so i, I can say on that level i you know like uh, i'm uh, i'm thankful for for what my parents have done but i can say one thing that I can probably hope to do better than them on is that my kid is going to have a sense that Vietnam is there and there's a lot of like tensions there, but I'm going to be willing to talk through those tensions with her. Right. Yeah. And that the and, and that the don't here, right? Like, like that if she goes down to Quan Cam, things are gonna be a little bit weird in certain ways. Like she goes into Little Saigon and goes on Bolsa. Some people she can talk to a certain way, some people she can talk to a different way, and I'm going to be able to express those things to her, right, and express to her the values of different parts, parts of the community, the things that are sticking, the things that are conflicts, the things that are resonant, in ways that, because of trauma, because of the need to assimilate, because of, uh, man, they had to make paper too, right? I mean, yeah. like, yep. like, all those kind of things. They, they did not do or were not willing to do at the time. Uh, hopefully we would be able to do. Well, Jason, I had a wonderful time um, talking to you today. Uh, there's probably a lot more stuff. You know, I think the next time that you and I should come back to, a, um, to an episode is if there's another phenomenon like rap Viet in Vietnam that comes out, because I kind of missed that boat and I, I wish I kind of was paying attention and, and followed along. I don't know how well versed you are with that genre, but maybe we can get on another episode and we can just, just focus, you know, hey, let's both binge it. I haven't watched it. And then we can just talk about it because I think it's mm -hmm. related to uh, obviously ethnomusicology, but it's also related to our passion for music and it's related to American um, you know, music from, from the ghettos in the hood here. And now it's like being transplanted in Vietnam. I think that would be a, a cool uh, next uh, episode to do uh, in a few months or, you know, this year. Yeah, I mean, definitely the kind of worldwide hip hop movement has things that are that are complicated that would love to, to, to dissect. Yeah, I want to devote like, like a whole episode just talking about rap Viet because yeah. um, that is something that I am, you know, I've stood from afar to kind of like uh, hear about it and um, think about, but I want to like, I want to consume it. I want to binge it. And then I want to talk about it. I mean, dude, it's been around long enough now that there's a, there's a, there's a kind of like 
elder class, right? I mean, sure. there, there's like there's like old school rap bit now, right? So like, sure. we we will have a lot to uh, listen to to catch up. Yeah, have you seen the show? Uh, I have not seen the, I, I haven't seen the show yet. Um, so, but I've heard like I've like heard a lot about it. Yeah, so, we can and we can yeah. watch it on YouTube. I think that's yeah. uh, something that I've been really wanting to do. So I'll give ourselves a few months to uh, to do it. And if you ever reach out to me and say, hey, let's start it now. And then in a month, <laughs> you know, like this is something yeah. that's imp important for for both of us. I think it's it's an important conversation for the for the both of us, because I think in the diaspora, I mean, how many guys are talking about rap? Viet? You know, I have some friends that, that are, you know, my age that are like culturally, you know, uh, keeping in touch with all these things. But I yeah. think for you and I, um, you know, I have, uh, I went to music school for a year for vocal training. So, and I studied with uh, Tai Tang and Zikan oh. for each for about a year. Oh, wow. Tai Tang for two years and Zikan. Yeah. That's how I am, was able to learn Vietnamese really. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Studying with those guys or, you know, God bless both of them. They're, they're both not with us anymore, but um, yeah, huge influence in my um, musical sort of understanding. I mean, I'm not anywhere at your level, but I have a sense of sort of where this is all has been and where it's going. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate you having me on the, on the show and it, it's, it's been fun. a bit fun to just rap about, you know, everything. Yeah, it really is. And yeah. you know, we're just getting started. I think the, yeah. uh, the Vietnamese, um, you know, we, we are amplifying our voices. All right, Jason, we will talk very soon. And uh, thanks again. All right. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran and Javier Proenza. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Thanks again for listening.